Welcome to Down the Wormhole. My name is Joshua Weinberg. I'm Zachary Miller. And we are joined again by our good friend, Mike Bertizzi. Hi, and uh, thank you very much for having me. And I'd like to start off with today's uh, college pro tip. And that is, if your professor assigns you something ahead of time, you should always leave it till the last possible minute. You do your best work when under panicked pressure. I know I do. Yep. I think we're all speaking from experience. And take it from us. Well, don't do that, but <laughs> it's good advice. Hey, take a look at this podcast. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm only like four weeks behind. <clears throat> anyway. Anyway. Uh, so today... Today we wanted to uh, pick up kind of almost where we left off last episode, when uh, we did we mentioned something about mechanical computers. Now, we could go an entire episode and talk about the intricate details of these machines and how, in every way, they um, how, how do I say uh, make your engineering bits tingle with delight. Yeah, that's that's a it's, good it's way. Really, of it's really it. diving into every nut and bolt of how these things work, what their Literally function was, and, and what, they were, what they were trying to do. Um, we will however, think... if we did that, um, chances are we picked up for uh, we'd be picked up by the uh, sleep the sleep school for funding. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so we'll link a video if that's what you're interested. in. In. However, we want to. We'll talk about the mechanical computers a little bit, the firing control computers, the the problem it has to solve. We we mentioned that a bit last time. We'll talk about that a little more this time, and then we're gonna move into some different topics that might be more big. Mike, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Do I? No. Well, this this really picks up uh, from something we were talking about last episode when we were discussing battleships. And uh, this this really was tangent that we delved into a little bit then, and uh, never made it into the episode. So we thought we'd incorporate it into uh, this week's episode, and that is the concept of mechanical fire control computers. Now, to begin with, the problem of of figuring out where to aim a gun from a moving ship in three dimensions to f- hit another moving object in three dimensions. Taking into account wind, and okay. I, I think I, I think I have a good way of uh, a good of analogy for this. <laughs> but, uh, ha- have either of you ever played darts? Not yes. well. Not, Not well, well, but yes. Okay. So you know, think of your basic game of darts. You have a target. You have your dart, and you have to f- kind of think about how you want to throw it. Now, let's imagine that instead of standing on the floor, you're standing on a red flyer wagon that is being pulled across the floor. Do you think you would still be able to hit the target? I'm sorry. Do you think then you would might be able to hit the target? Well, no. I wasn't able to do it before, so no. No. Okay. Well, All right, granted, now, if I had the capacity to hit the target in the first place, it probably wouldn't take much. But okay. Yes. Right, so it's a much more difficult harder. problem. Is the now, point. now let's say due to the incompetence of a interior designer, the dartboard is placed on the back of a sliding door. And you're at a party with lots of people, so this thing is moving back and forth while you're on your wagon. I don't know what kind of party this would be. Sounds, uh, sounds like now. my kind of party. But if it's, you know, there's dartboards, screen door, uh, sliding doors, wagons, and darts, sounds like a good time. Absolutely. But, Indeed. You now the dartboard is moving. Uh, you're moving. Now let's say the floor is also 
pretty poorly built and it's very bumpy. So now you're moving, you're shaking around while you're trying to throw this thing. Up and down and back yeah. and forth, as well as moving sideways at potentially varying speeds. Exactly. Let's measure them in knots, for while, example. <laughs> while the target is also doing the exact same motion in a different direction. Exactly. So what you end up with is a problem which which has <laughs> many dozens of simultaneous inputs. Simultaneously changing inputs. Simultaneously, yeah. constantly changing inputs that only have one solution for the problem that you're asking. And at any given time. And how do you solve this? Well, nowadays... Without electricity. Nowadays, you'd use a computer. You pump all these things in, you plug it through a model, chug along, you get what you want. Not that hard. Not that hard in in concept. In practice, it's its own thing. Now, do it without electricity. Or an electrical computer, specifically. What do you have? I think I should clarify that the problem we're talking about is hitting another warship from your warship while both are moving on the ocean at many dozens of miles distance. So, Mike, with purely mechanical means, how would you solve this very complex problem? Well, if you're asking me, then I have no goddamn idea. However, <laughs> luckily, mechanical engineers <laughs> In the 70, past. 70 years ago were able to come up with a solution. Josh, would you like to tell us what that solution was? Th- their solution is known as the mechanical firing computer. This device takes physical inputs from crank wheels and slides and dials and various mechanical analog inputs and combines all that information instantaneously into a firing solution for the gun. It's really quite interesting because the, this is not it's, it's not like a calculator where no. you, you punch some buttons and you hit another button and it gives you the answer. No. The, this is something that gives you an up to the second oh, yeah. solution for the problem that as, you're asking. As the inputs change, the outputs change along with them. So, just picturing the way something like this works, it's a box the size of maybe a washer and dryer. A washing machine. A washer and dryer. dryer. It's two put together. So, not insubstantially sized thing, but something this small. Also not horribly massive. Not horribly massive. Very heavy. Very very heavy and very (laughs) very solid steel. (laughs) Very dense. And it's sitting on on, on the ship in... What is there, one per turret? Um, I believe the, these computers were centralized through the Combat Information Center uh, in the ship. So there's now, one per ship? Not necessarily. Uh, this is a... I, I'm embarrassed. This is something that I should know. Um, when I was sitting on the... Uh, I wasn't sitting. Uh, when I was in Buffalo, New York, I visited uh, the Buffalo... Uh, Naval Park, and they have uh, three three vessels there, and one of them was the USS the Sullivans, which is a Fletcher class destroyer, and I was able to see one of these units in the CIC. Oh, okay. And as we said, it was about the size of a washer dryer, and I think to some extent they only had one for the at the time five guns on the ship. Five individual guns? Five individual five-inch guns. Okay. And 
I don't know, but I, I think it's possible that either it takes multiple inputs to give multiple outputs for each gun, or that because the size of the ship is small relative to the distances being calculated, you, just give you can have one, one solution for all of the guns. So you can really summate the length of a ship as a, you know, a couple hundred feet. You, you can approximate the ship as a, a single point. point to, okay. And, you know, end up with the... Uh, with something that's close sol- enough. Cl- close mm-hmm. enough, yeah. Because with... When you take into... When, when you take factors that you can't really control into account, like wind mm-hmm. at your target, then, you know, the size of a ship isn't going to make much of a difference. And how many barrels yeah. per gun on this five-gun ship? Uh, well, Fletcher-class destroyer was armed uh, with five... Five-inch guns in single tur- uh, single gun turrets. Okay, so that five guns. Shooting. Five guns, yes. Because I know on modern or at least semi-modern battleships, there were about three per turret. Uh, battleships generally had two to three guns per turret. The mm-hmm. British and the French had some oddball ships with four guns per turret. They look kind of ridiculous. I bet. Especially the French ones, they kind of got crazy, but they were the French. <laughs> uh, and expect. If, and if our listener happens to be French. Um, I am not apologizing. <laughs> Fair enough. There's... We didn't say bad. Just crazy. Just crazy, yeah. Take it as a compliment from us. Okay. Now, when you're talking about these machines, how they take these inputs from many different places. You, you have the, the, the person who is actually sighting where shells are going and aiming at the target. You have people who are managing information like wind, you have sep- separate people who are managing information like uh, uh, where the ship is, you have sensors which are indicating the, the orientation of the ship on the water and its speed, and this is all being fed in. Do these, did these just give an output like numerically where to aim the gun, or did these actually turn the turrets directly? I believe they, they manage the turrets directly. That would make sense. Um, so they also it was, it was going very through. yes. These if, were these were powered turrets, and if uh, hydro, I'm, hydraulic and electrically powered. If I remember correctly, uh, when I when I was when I took the tour of the battleship New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, they the the tour guide mentioned that what that once you decide where you want to fire, you aim, you have all your information in, you hit fire. Nothing will happen until the ship is in an appropriate orientation for the computer to actually. Catch the solution. Now it would th- that would indicate to me he's referring to the uh, the 1980s refit of the USS New Jersey. Were they electronic? I they, they added a lot more, uh, you know, highly advanced computing computing equipment mm-hmm. uh, during the refits. You know, they took out a lot of the five inch turrets and added, you know, Tomahawk missile launchers and. Uh, <laughs> But the five-inch turrets weren't good enough anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Ra- range of a fun. range of a five-inch gun, you know, maybe a dozen miles or so. Range range of a tomahawk, several hundred. <laughs> yeah, comparable. I mean, it's a jet yeah, engine yeah. with a bomb on the front. Yeah, and fairly, fairly, very highly advanced uh, terrain matching software and GPS guidance. Terrain matching, so they, it's kinda, kinda, they float. It's, it's called Tercom. At least, not, at least that's what they used at the time. I don't know that's if they still a, use that. So it's kind of it, it has watches a, the has ground. A, yes, it has a radar. It. Has a radar uh, in the nose, which you know can see the ground and matches it to known terrain contours of the area, and so it knows where it is and it really keeps cool. very low. Yeah. How, so I, mean, I guess we don't really. That's not publicly known how low they fly. 
um, I don't know, how do you quantify very? <laughs> like, are we talking 10 feet or 50? Uh, probably around 50. <laughs> um, so, back to the mechanical yeah. computers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. these things were made up of modules that calculated things. So you had each individual calculation made by a module. You had multiplication modules. You had addition modules. You had what I think were the most interesting things. Integrators. Exactly. Integral Integrators. modules. So I want to I wanna go through this. So the way these things worked, if you know what an integral is, it's how to uh, find the area under a curve over a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Um, over a cer- sorry, over a certain interval. My bad. Um, and it's very hard to do this mechanically. So what they did is they took a drum in the shape of that um, of that the curve they were plotting. And so this was a solid machine drum in the shape of that, and it could rotate. Um, and slide based on different inputs, and that would give the value for the integral. Mm-hmm. So it was a very—it's a very literal interpretation of the integral, and I think that's really cool. Mike, I really wish I had had one of those back when I was taking Calc One. Right. Though I feel like the professor would have had some questions. If you, know, you pull out something uh, the size middle, of a typewriter, in the, in, the middle, <laughs> in the middle of a test, you know, all was quiet, and then uh, pull this thing Thunk. out, and uh, you know, I had my assistant there to operate the crank while and, I, yeah. you know, manage the inputs and uh, probably some kind of stenographer to keep track of the output while I'm, you know. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you can only solve one problem with it. Well, you know that. No, that's what the that's what the additional machine shop staff. Oh, okay, for. yeah. Got to bring the machine um, shop with you. Yeah, I don't feel you know, like something tells me this is kind of impractical. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, little these bit. are good. These are good when you know the problem you're solving. Yeah, if you don't know the problem you're solving. Well, I haven't known that for four years. So. <laughs> uh, no, no, not, not the not the problem. Not that problem. Different problem. <laughs> Different problem. Yeah, no. The, the problem you're talking about... It's more not, existential. Not, Can't really solve that with math. None of us know the answer. And I don't think we ever will. So, guys, what do you think the most classified thing in the Second World War was on the Allied side? The most classified. The recipe to their MREs. Okay, that's still classified. I'm going to need you to stop talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> was it not well, the, the firing control computers? It, it was not. Well, the... The this is kind of a, this is kind of a gimme answer, but it, it really was, it was the Manhattan Project. Oh well, oh, duh. No, the second. Like I didn't even I didn't even like process that. Process yeah. that was. See how good they are. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> After that, you know, it's probably Thanks. debatable, but I would say it was the Norden bomb site. What's that? This was a device the size of this box right here. Okay, so a take-out okay, container. Maybe, uh, okay, maybe a, f- a little bit larger than that. That would fit in the nose of a bomber and solve a problem similar to the fire control problem. And that was, where do, do you release your bombs so that they hit their target where you're aiming? Oh, the bomb site. That's right. Yes. They still so weren't very accurate. More accurate than you would think. Okay. Within five I, miles um, is not accurate by all right, my standards. So, all right, no, no, no. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, 
a single a single bomber with one of these flying at thirty three thousand feet could pretty pretty well put a bomb within a uh, a target area. Um, the of, problem the problem came with uh, the size of that target area. No, the problem came with it's like all right, so you have this thing that requires some skill to use, and you have a flight of 150 bombers, do you want all of them doing that? No. Only the lead plane would be u- utilizing this device, and then once they drop their bombs, every single one of the planes behind them would start dropping their bombs. And hopefully you get your And target. hopefully you get them in the same area. But what this was, was a mechanical computer that would take in airspeed, uh altitude information and the bombardier would line up the site you know by almost looking through a telescope mm-hmm. and he would line up the target and he would just keep the crosshairs pointed on that target and this device would take control of the airplane from the pilot and keep the plane level on course in order f- in order to keep those crosshairs on the target from the, by bomb- the, way the from bombardier the, was by the way the bombardier was manipulating the inputs and okay. this and this was able to accurately drop a button. Okay, like I like I said, one plane within accurately five miles drops or so. Mm, I don't know, like uh, one mile maybe, which at the time was pretty. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Good. Yeah, flying and, at what uh, three hundred miles an hour, two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, roughly. And thirty-three thousand like feet. Yeah, yeah. thirty-three thousand feet, and you could probably yeah. accurately drop a bomb. And uh, so, an interesting question was was. Uh, was raised, and that is was the blast radius of these bombs, and you know these planes would be carrying you know five hundred thousand pound bombs, which refers to the total weight of them. So I mean, like one of them could like blow up a house. Okay. About that, yeah. Uh, interestingly, you don't really they're, have they're the, little they're little they're little firecrackers, really. They're not little. <laughs> they are not little. They're <laughs> thousand pounds. Um. That's, that's just, that just sounds inefficient to me. It's like, it, it actually is. And uh, there was somebody who noticed that uh, these were inefficient because they're just blowing into the air. His name was Barnes Wallace. And he, that's a good name. Yes, good and name. He, was, he was a British engineer, and honestly, he could have his own episode. Really? We're not, I don't think we should do it. I, I don't think so either. No. What, what did he what did He done he a lot of war stuff. Uh, he developed something called the earthquake bomb. That sounds okay. interesting. It is fascinating. Uh, the actual technical term used by the British Air Force was the Grand Slam. This was... I like Earthquake Bomb, honestly. <laughs> no, I more like intimidating. that better. This was a... Jeez, oh, I want to say 22,000 pound bomb. 22,000 pounds? Was that explosive or actual weight? The, the total weight. Okay. And this thing was shaped roughly like, uh, more streamlined than a, it almost looked like a elongated teardrop. Okay. okay. And it had a solid steel nose mm-hmm. and fins that would get it spinning once it was dropped. Uh, I think I see where this is going. And this thing would be dropped from 33,000 feet and start spinning to keep it accurate. Uh, approach the speed of sound, pass the speed of sound, keep going past the speed of sound, and then when it impacted impacted the ground, would bury itself several dozen hundred feet into the ground several before detonating. Dozen feet. And cause an earthquake. A small earthquake. Doesn't matter. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Would bury itself in the ground and cause an earthquake. That would take down <laughs> buildings. It took down bridges, buildings, city everything. blocks. Yes. 
that is efficient comparatively. Sounds, uh, but 22,000 pounds, it sounds like you couldn't put too many of those on a plane. No, you didn't only, need only to. a single one on a Lancaster bomber. That sounds about right. Here's the problem, or here's the thing. After you did that, you didn't need to. You really didn't need to. <laughs> you got it close enough, it didn't matter. Yeah. This that's, is also, that's the thing, though, getting it close enough. This is also the man who developed the uh, counter-rotating, spinning drum, bouncing bomb used to destroy dams. You guys might notice a major discontinuity in the conversation. So, I just want to let that be known. We're going to continue now. Okay. So, let's get back on the topic of computers. We've talked about mechanical. Let's kind of transition into electrical and talk about their main differences. So, I mean... For the, for the longest time the, the in, in the Second World War, we used mechanical computers. But, I mean, once electronic computers came along, they just almost completely dropped off. So, like, what are the, what are the main benefits well, of using electronic over mechanical? I, well, here's the thing. Because at the time, there wasn't. It was the new thing. It was more, it was more accurate because it could change. It could change differently. Here, here's the main difference with um, mechanical versus electrical. So, a, a mechanical computers are what are called continuous functions. They are instantaneously changing. An input goes in, changes, and immediately as that input goes in, the output is changed. And that is called a continuous function. The d thing with electrical computers is they are discrete functions. So, they are data points that are summated into a continuous function. So imagine a continuous function is a flowing curve. A discrete function in how electric, electronic computers work is it's a lot of step functions. All would, of those step like to, functions. I'd just like to uh, uh, jump in here. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm actually learning about this in my electronics class currently. Um, we've covered uh, both analog and digital devices, and that really is the difference between mm -hmm. mechanical and electrical computers. Is that mechanical? computers are really analog devices, you know, it's yeah. a continuous sort of thing, and electrical computers operate on digital, yeah. digital so signals, you know, I wanna, ones I wanna, and zeros. I want to get into also the, 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 the real main benefit of, of a digital system of, of an electronic computer is that with a the disadvantage of a mechanical system is that it can do one thing, exactly yeah. what it was built for, and that's it. With the electrical system, it, it's, it runs on code, which can be changed and updated. It, and is, it is far more versatile, so, why that maintained. so while that mechanical computer we talked about for the firing control could only solve or firing control problem from that one ship and that one area from those five guns, that is all it could solve. An electrical computer can be told and programmed to do anything it wants. You know, given resources and power, right, and computing power, but it can be solve any problem you give it. Um, and while the disadvantage is accuracy, because it's not continuous, there are those steps that look like a continuous function. Nowadays, with electric computers, that's almost non-existent because with, our computers. Oh well, yeah, you have. I mean, once now you have things like floating point operations, which have as much precision as needed. Yeah. Yeah, and pretty much. And where, whereas in mechanical computer, you know, we say, oh, it's 
you know, perfectly it's continuous precise. and it's constantly moving. But no, you're you're really limited by the precision of, of the machining of the machining and the parts that you're using. Right. Whereas with a computer, we can get to a much higher degree of accuracy because uh, you know if we're talking about something that's time dependent, we can calculate solutions yeah. on the on you the know, microsecond nano computers computers right. currently for instance my computer runs at 4400 gigahertz no no it does not it runs at four it runs at four gigahertz sorry yeah 4.4 4, uh, gigahertz yeah um my bad um 4.4 4 gigahertz meaning every what Every second, you are running mm-hmm. four point four oh, yeah. billion operations. Yeah, um, four so point four, four thirty two bit. Sorry, four point four billion sixty four bit operations. Yeah. Most of the time, though, on a computer even like yours, it's actually running twice that many thirty two bit operations because it can. Yeah, and that's easier since I'm not running things that need sixty four bit. Um, so let's say you're taking a number, and you'll know this better than me. How many did? How many ones and zeros does a number take? What kind of number? Um, the real question is what kind of. Okay. So if you want to talk about a 64-bit system, which can handle a 64-bit input to the processor, what's 64 bits to a number? No, wait, two, what's two to the 64? Two to, two to the 64, and the answer, I believe, in technical terms, is a lot. Is a and it does that. Uh, 4.4 billion times a second. So you're getting to... So my main point is that accuracy really falls off when you're... The accuracy problem really falls off when you're talking about that many operations a second. So the main advantage is just versatility, and at this point, accuracy. Um, right. It's also these these days, because back when first electrical computers first came about, they were expensive as hell. You know, they were, what, millions of dollars for one machine? Yeah, they fit in a room, and they, you know, by our standards, be slow, pretty crap. Yeah. But, uh, that... They um, could solve any problem you gave them. Provided they provided were... Provided co- they fit in they that were, coded. They were coded and driven by punch, punch cards and all kinds of... Yeah, my, of- uh, my, uh, my mother... Worked for IBM. She was an electrical engineer. Really, and she she recalls you know using these uh, you know early computers that would would uh, fill an entire room and uh, you know she she remembers I w- I wouldn't say fondly because you know they had their problems yeah <laughs> as all computers do oh but, no uh, I got this one punch wrong the whole, the whole thing's uh, gone yep. to shit exactly and. Uh, and uh, you know she kind of reminisced how nowadays she has her her smartphone, which now can do several thousand yeah. times the processing power of what she was using back then. Yeah. So here's the thing, my very so our high end computers that we have at home cost what grand to two grand a say, piece. Say, say two thousand dollars. Two thousand dollars gets you a very powerful. Yeah. Very, very home computer. powerful home computer. To that is absurdly cheap for what it does compared to a comparable analog system. Analog systems are insanely expensive because each part has to be precision machined, machined, and the whole thing has to be designed. All right, so we've been going a while, and 
well, You're probably at, at sick least, of hearing us. At least for us. We've been going quite a while. By the time you hear this, it might be quite short. I, I think the term is time dilation, and I am fully confident in using that term <laughs> in, the, in the context of quantum mechanics for what uh, we're experiencing. We're not moving very fast, and we never have. Well, shut up. <laughs> anyway, I just want to uh, wrap this up. So, I'm Joshua Lockwood. I'm Zachary Miller. I'm, um... Mike Burtinsky. And this has been Down the Wormhole.